always appreciate and enjoy the music that we get during the offering. So thank you for Andrew and Mary and Lisa, which direction should I point, uh, for sharing your talents with us. It's truly a blessing. Uh, so good morning, everyone, again. Uh, I actually want to start off our sermon this morning by repeating the quote from Patrick Henry that I gave at the opening of service. He said that Henry wrote in his will, I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There is one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is the Christian religion. If they had that and I had not given them one shilling, they would be rich. And if they had not that and I had given them all the world, they would be poor. My brothers and sisters, we know that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is worth more than all the treasures of this world. But we also know that this world tries to tell us something very different. It tries to tell us that life can be found in a number of places outside of Christ. As we'll see this morning, and many of us already know, any such claim is false. In Christ alone do we find life. And this, as we've seen in these past several weeks, is a major focus of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And so as we continue our series this morning, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. And up to this point in the letter, we've seen Paul express a variety of messages for his audience, the church in Colossae. He's told them how he's thankful for them and their faith. He's given them encouragement. He's prayed for them. And everything that he does and communicates to them, he wants them to know that it's all based on a single idea of Christ at the center. And coincidentally enough, that is what we have titled the series, Christ at the Center. So before we get into our passage for today, let's take a moment to pray. Our Father in heaven, we are gathered here today, first and foremost, to worship you. As part of that worship, we earnestly seek to understand your word written through the hand of your Apostle Paul. Give us that ability to understand so that we may remain steadfast in our faith and not stray as the world around us continues to change and tell us something different than your word. Amen. Now hear God's word from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. As Dave walked us through a couple weeks ago, if we look at the first few verses of Colossians 2, we saw that Paul revealed his goal for the believers in the church in Colossae. And I really like how Dave put it for us. 
uh, terms that are much easier to understand, that Paul was like a spiritual grandfather to this church at Colossae. And like any grandparent, Paul wanted nothing but the best for his grandchildren. There was no better joy for him than knowing that Christ indeed was at the center of their lives. And this knowledge for Paul made all of the striving, all of the work, all of the agony that he went through for them worthwhile. So this idea of a spiritual grandfather really forms the context for our passage for today. And just like many grandparents do, Paul then goes in and provides advice or instruction for his grandchildren. And in fact, we see the first commands from Paul in this letter. Verse 6 says, to live your lives in him. And then verse 8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive. And we'll come back to those commands a little bit. If you look at the second half of our passage for today, starting in verse 9, Paul's really providing the reasons why we can live our lives in him and why we can put aside the things in this world that take us captive. And it should come as no surprise that Paul's reasoning, Paul's justification for those commands are centered on the person of Jesus Christ. As we work our way through this passage today, we're going to use two words as sort of a guide for us. And those two words are in Christ. And I'm going to include in him with that as well. If you were keeping track in just these seven verses, Paul uses the two words in Christ or in him a total of five times. This reveals to us that these words are important to Paul. And if you read a lot of Paul's letters, you'll see that amongst all his letters, he uses those words a total of 143 times. Uh, the rest of the New Testament uses those words together a total of 37 times. So these words are especially important to Paul, and he doesn't use them in a way that's empty. He doesn't use them as a crutch. And so it's worth it for us to look at the ways that he uses in Christ in this passage and see what that will tell us. So let's start off in verse 6. Paul writes, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. The so then that starts off here, verse 6, that starts off this command, really ties us back to those previous verses. Or as we just said, Paul talks about how he worked agonizingly hard for this church. And then the rest of this verse tells us why Paul worked so hard. So that they would live just as they were taught and as they now believe, that Jesus Christ is their Lord. We had a call to worship, and we had three worship songs that referenced Christ as our King. It's the same idea as Christ as Lord. For Jesus to be our Lord means that he has authority over us, and that he is deserving of our devotion and our obedience to him. And so if we are to do, as verse 6 says, to live our lives in Christ Jesus, who is Lord, that means we no longer live for our own desires, we no longer live for our own pleasure, but instead we live solely to please our Lord and God. Moving into verse 7 now, we see our second in Christ phrase. It says that we are to live our lives rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. I love... Paul's imagery here with the phrase rooted and built up. I think most of us have a pretty good idea that a plant that has strong roots is much more likely to be a strong plant. And this is kind of a fun time of the year to go up into the mountains 
you're likely to see trees, sometimes very large trees, that have completely blown over and uprooted all of their roots with them. And it's particularly interesting to see how many of those trees have a surprisingly shallow root structure. The tree might be 100 feet tall, the roots just a couple feet deep. So then it's no surprise that when the winds blow and the storms come, that such trees blow over. There's not a lot to hold them in place. <clears throat> this is quite different from trees that we're more familiar with on the desert floor, say juniper trees, uh, which have very deep root systems. Uh, I spent several days recently, southwest Colorado, old uranium mining country, and there's some large pits in the ground, and you can see just how many feet down those juniper roots grow. Uh, and so you don't see often junipers that blow over. They have a very, very deep root structure, which helps them be rooted strongly, withstand the wind, and also helps them withstand the dry conditions. We can take a lot from that. When our lives are rooted in Christ, as Paul says here in verse 7, we are just like one of those trees that has a very deep and a strong root structure. So when the dry seasons of life come, and they will, we don't wither away. And instead, we continue to bear fruit for the kingdom. When the storms that come in life, and they do come, we are rooted in Christ. And so we aren't blown over. We aren't uprooted. We remain strong in him. Paul also kind of combines that with the imagery, imagery of a building. He says, built up in him, which we can think of as comparing Jesus like the foundation of a building. Similarly, a building that lacks a strong foundation is not a building that's going to last. Jesus talks about this, as we know, in his Sermon on the Mount. He says the person who hears and follows his words is like a man who built his house on the rock. And that house, because of its strong foundation, it withstood the wind the rain, and the floods that came. In contrast, the man who does not follow Jesus' teachings, we are told, is like the one who builds his house on sand, only to watch the house fall when the storms come. And Jesus says, great was the fall of it. And so what's revealed here, a life built on the firm foundation of Christ can withstand much, the wind, the rain, and the floods. Rooted in him and built up in him. Moving into verse 9, we're skipping verse 8 for now. Uh, so we said earlier, verses 9 through 12 consist of Paul's reasoning or his defense for why we should live in Christ. Verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This statement is actually quite bold, and it's very clear about who Jesus is. To say that the fullness of the deity lives within Jesus does not tell us that Jesus was just another man in whom the presence of God existed. Rather, what this language is communicating to us is that the full person of God, everything that makes God who he is, lives within the person of Christ. So much so that there really is no difference between God and Jesus Christ, or we can say Jesus is God, just as the Father is God and just as the Holy Spirit is God. So if Jesus is God, he, of course, deserves all of our devotion and our obedience to him. Who else but God himself, as we said in verses 6 and 7, is deserving of this? Who else could we build our lives on? Who else can we be rooted in? And the answer to those questions is there is none other who is worthy. 
Moving into verse 10, we find additional reasons from Paul to live our lives in Christ, and we see a repeat of the word fullness. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So two verses in a row, we see the word fullness, and actually the, the meanings are a little bit different here. Verse 9, we just saw the fullness of God referred to everything that makes God who he is, and that lives within Christ. But here in verse 10, the fullness is not referring to God, but it's referring to us, and that we have been made full or brought to fullness. We can get a little bit better idea of what's meant here in verse 10 if we actually go back to the end of verse 7, where Paul encouraged his readers to be overflowing with thankfulness, or they would be so full of thankfulness that it overflows. So to be brought to fullness in the context of verse 10 here means that we have everything we need, and really we have life. We have the fullness of life because of Jesus. There's no other way that we can reach fullness. There's no other teaching, there's no other ritual or action, no other power or authority, as it says here, that can bring us from death into life. Only Jesus can do that. So only in Christ do we find fullness and do we find life. Moving into verse 11, we read that in Christ, we were circumcised, although not by human hands. Now, whenever the Bible talks about circumcision, I always go back to the story of Abraham. Genesis 17, God promises Abraham that he's going to make him the father of many nations, that he will be a God to both Abraham and his offspring, and that he will provide them with the promised land. What's Abraham to do in return? he and all of his offspring are to be circumcised. Not that the circumcision is an earning of any of these things, but it does mark them as a visible sign that they are part of this covenant. They are part of God's chosen people. And so through the generations, even down to Jesus, the, the Jewish people were all circumcised to identify them as part of this covenant. But the circumcision here in verse 11 is different. It says it was not performed by human hands. It then goes on to say that your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So what, what is this talking about here then? We can get a little bit of a hint if we read ahead in the verse 13, which says that we were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. So flesh, as used here and really throughout the New Testament, generally refers to our sinful nature. So in Christ, we receive a circumcision that consists of Christ cutting away our flesh or cutting away our sinful nature. And just as circumcision was a sign to mark God's people under the old covenant, so Jesus' circumcision that he provides to us marks us as one of his chosen people. Our sinful nature is cut away and now we are clearly identified as belonging to Christ. Moving now into verse 12, there are no in Christ statements, but there are two with hymns that show up here, so it's still worth our attention. And the topic shifts a little bit from circumcision into baptism. Now, oftentimes we look at baptism as a physical washing, that is symbolic of our sins being washed away. And that is absolutely true. 
But there's more to baptism than that. Baptism is also often used as a symbol of death as one goes underwater and rising to new life as one rises out of it. And we see this here in verse 12. As Paul says that we were buried with Christ in baptism, we died with him, and we were raised to new life with him as God raised him to life. So now if we put verses 11 and 12 together, because it is all one sentence, it tells us that in Christ our sinful nature is cut away. Our flesh is put to death. And we are raised to life just as Christ was raised to life. All of our sin is removed from us. Death itself is behind us, and we can now live our new life in Christ. So let's briefly summarize what we've learned about this in Christ phrase in this passage. To live in Christ means that we build our life upon Jesus. He's the deepest of all roots, and he's the firmest of all foundations. And we can do this because Christ himself is God, and there is no other but God who is deserving of our devotion and obedience. There is no other besides Christ that can bring us the fullness of life for which we overflow with thankfulness. And only in Christ can our sinful nature be cut away and can we find new life. Maybe the best part of all of these in Christ statements comes with the fact that they're all written in the past tense. So read through here. We have already been brought to fullness. We have already had our sins cut away. We have already been raised to new life. There is no need to add anything to the work that Christ did. As the author of the letter to the Hebrews describes it, this, his was a once-for-all sacrifice. It was enough at that time, and it's still enough today. But as all of us know, the world tries to tell us something different. Uh, and verse 8 is going to warn us against that. Paul says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now we can define philosophy as just a way of thinking. And philosophy by itself is not inherently bad. But what Paul specifically warns about here is philosophies which are based on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, which meaning of that's debated a little bit. Most say that means the ways and knowledge of this world. And these philosophies are bad because they're hollow. They're empty and they're deceptive. There's nothing there that holds any value for us. This is a lot different than what Paul has told us several times just in chapter 2 about a life in Christ. Go back to verse 2. Paul says that he's working so that his churches would have the full riches of complete understanding. Verse 7, we saw Paul instructs his readers to be overflowing with thankfulness. And as we just saw in verse 11, you have been brought to fullness. I think that's verse 10, not 11. Sorry. But being full and overflowing, as Paul continually talks about here, it's very different than believing in something that's hollow and deceptive that the world tries to teach us. 
I think many of us know that mankind has long searched for meaning and significance in this life. There's that question that maybe everybody has asked. What is the meaning of life? So what Paul tells us here in this passage really is that meaning, that significance, where life itself is found in Christ alone. There is no other spiritual practice. There is no philosophy. There is no false god or false prophet that has ever offered anything of real value. We find meaning for this life in Christ alone, and we can, live, we can press into that by living our lives rooted in him and built up in him. So what might be included in this idea of hollow and deceptive philosophy? Well, for the church at Colossae, we know a little bit there are some false teachers around that basically they insisted that Jesus wasn't enough. Perhaps this was the Roman pagan religion with their whole host of gods, various gods, all of which must be appeased before you would have blessings in your life. We know that at that time there were also those within the Jewish faith who insisted that you couldn't just become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first and then follow Christ while still holding on to all of the laws and all the traditions of Judaism. Now, whether one or both of these was true or something completely different, really doesn't matter. The thing that's in common here is that the teaching was that Jesus was not enough. Both of these religions taught Jesus and. You needed Jesus and all these Roman gods. You needed Jesus and the traditions of Judaism. And this Jesus and type of teaching, it really was prevalent among the early churches as you read through the rest of the New Testament. You might read about Gnosticism, which taught that one must follow Jesus and practice extreme self-denial while seeking out special spiritual knowledge. There were other early heresies of the church that claimed that Jesus was a created being rather than the eternal self-existent God. So then you needed Jesus and God because Jesus, they said, was not enough. Both of those would be hollow and deceptive philosophies. And of course, today it has its own fair share of hollow and deceptive philosophies. There are many in our culture especially who directly attack the church and God's word, insisting that anyone who believes the Bible and not the doctrines of modern culture are hateful, they're bigoted, and they're closed-minded. Others are a little more kind. They'll claim that Jesus, he was a good man, a good teacher. Maybe even they'll admit that he was a prophet. But they say he was not God. But this too is all hollow and deceptive philosophy. There's nothing there. Even within churches that identify as Christian, I think a lot of us know that there are false, false gospels. There's a good chance you've been visited at home by some missionaries. There's two main types that go around. One of them's going to hand you a book that looks a lot like the Bible, but it's going to be called the New World Translation. And if you read this New World Translation, in fact, if you just read Colossians chapter 1, you'll see their claim that Jesus is a lesser God created by the Father, and therefore it is nothing like what we believe here. Other missionaries might hand you a book which on the very cover claims to be another testament of Jesus Christ. And in this church, Jesus is not enough. You have the Bible and this extra book, and you must follow their book of doctrine and covenants. 
There are other churches as well that preach who Jesus is, but they talk a lot more about material blessings, how Jesus will grant us what we desire if we just ask, if we name it and claim it. These gospels claim to be the real thing. At times they might sound like the real thing, and they are certainly appealing, but they are indeed deceptive. They do not lead us to Jesus where we find our fullness. They lead us to nothing but emptiness. So looking back to the final words of verse 7, Paul said that we are to live strengthened in the faith as we were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Think as, our, as the name of our church represents. To be a follower of Jesus is more than just about salvation. It's about finding an entirely new life in him. We don't just name and claim things that we desire in this world, but we do recognize that we have been blessed, and in response, we overflow with thankfulness to our God. We recognize that we are utterly and completely dependent on him for everything in this life, even meeting our simple, everyday needs. And we recognize that even though we will never get everything we desire in this life, we already get so much more than what we could possibly deserve. And all of that happens with a life in Christ. So let us do what Paul tells the Colossian church to do. Let us hold to the true gospel, just as we have been taught. Let us live our lives rooted and built up in Jesus, and let us completely reject every version of Jesus and that tries to creep its way into our hearts and minds. I couldn't help but think of the song In Christ Alone as I prepared this message. And the last couple of lines, I think, sum it up well for us. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray. God, only in you can life be found. Help us to hold fast to the true gospel. Help us to better know you through your word. And help us to recognize and reject any teaching of this world that tells us that you are not enough. Help us to root our lives in you and your word so that no storm can knock us over. So that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand. Amen.